0: Welcome to Imperfect World. I am your host, Christopher Hobson. In this episode, I speak with Claire Benn, a colleague of mine at the Australian National University. She's a philosopher who's exploring some of the ethical and political challenges that come with the advancement of machine intelligence. In our conversation, she clearly displays the value and need of drawing on philosophical reflection for thinking about the ways that digital technologies are reshaping our world. She points towards the importance of thinking about what distinguishes humans as moral agents in the world, and whether we can apply the same standards to thinking about machines. Our conversation explores the benefits that come with digital technologies, as well as the hidden and more obvious costs and compromises that come with these developments. I found it an illuminating and worthwhile discussion, and I'm sure you will too. For more information, please check imperfectnotes.substack.com and I can be reached at info.hobson at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. With this background in philosophy and interest in technology. And then you, you start to, to work on um, digital technologies, uh, issues related to AI and so on, and looking at it in terms of ethics. When you first started looking at this field, what was your kind of initial impression of ha- the, the discourse around ethics and, and normative issues?
1: So I was I began really interested in this idea that um ethics was about actions and that technology changes fundamentally the nature and scope of our actions. And in terms of the established literature there was some that kind of focused on on explicit kinds of technology and wanted to know about you know self-driving cars or it was it was um you know, focused on one particular application or one kind of development, whereas I was interested in much broader questions about the ways in which technology shape us and the ways in which we shape technology. And since I've been doing this postdoc where I work much more closely with computer scientists and I read much more work that comes out of that um, discipline, I've noticed as well that much of the kind of interesting work that was being done there didn't have a very solid foundation in ethics at all. So you can see this in kind of computer science papers that take maybe the most straightforward account of utilitarianism and try to say, well, let's write an algorithm that can, you know, enact utilitarian kind of outcomes or, dis- or um, judgments. And you think, yes, but you know, there's hundreds of years worth of history about the complexities of some of these ideas and philosophers are good at um, perhaps also annoying uh, about finding subtle distinctions um, that really matter when you consider different domains of, of application or when you consider them at scale and we really care about those subtleties and so some of the work I've been doing kind of interested in doing is bringing some of that subtlety uh, and ethical theory into this into this area which which is often lacking.
0: Well i At least with uh, a lot of work on technology, there's this default mentality of kind of solutionism. And that goes quite counter to the kind of logic you get in philosophy of permanent questioning, right? Like a kind of, the the logic is, is almost inverted because I think you know, perhaps a lot of people in computer science, the idea is that it is possible to solve a problem and, and resolve and find a, a method of providing an answer where perhaps one of the starting points for political theory and philosophy is, kind of an acceptance that perhaps an answer is not possible and a lot of it is actually kind of reckoning or dealing with this kind of ambiguity or this inability to find a solution.
1: Absolutely. I think philosophers are very good at finding problems and um, I disagree with any kind of sentiment that that in philosophy there's no right answers, but there's lots lots of wrong answers. Um, And a lot of the time, though, we understand that, finding the right answer is incredibly complicated and is itself a philosophical question about whether or not there is one. In fact, one of the earliest conversations I had as part of my position here was about the notion of moral dilemmas. Like, did they really exist? Can true moral conflict really occur where in some sense you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't? That the two courses of action available to you, um, both are wrong in some sense and I think that there is a great reluctance in an academic disciplines, but also in society in general, to think that we might be left in a situation where we could be at fault, no matter what we do. It seems like a natural intuition to say, well, some things are better or worse than others. And if you do whatever the better thing is, then surely you can kind of get away, that um, you're, you're morally um, unblemished by your choices. And I, for one, hold that that's not actually true. And I think that applies not only when it comes to individual decisions, that sometimes you can be caught in a situation where no matter what you do, you can be at fault. But definitely true when we start understanding the multiplicity of values at play when we make decisions collectively in a way that impacts a lot of people. And this has played out very much in discussions of fairness and equality when it comes to the use of technologies. Where you realise some systems are going to be fairer for some people at the expense of being less fair for other people, or in a different or in a different way unfair. And you, you can't have everything right all the time.
0: You're sp- you're speaking my language. I am I'm, <laughs> I'm very. I'm, I mean, I'm very interested in 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 the tragic tradition and the 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 logic of tragedy as a way of of understanding certain types of uh, dilemmas related to action and (laughs) i think this is a really powerful tradition of thought we have and it's it's interesting seeing how uncomfortable we are staying with that that tradition and where I think we're also at a cultural moment where there's not much space for tragedy, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, um, if we think about, you know, one of the most dominant motifs in political, you know, in, in culture at the moment, it's the superhero movie. <laughs> and you you have kind of like, I mean, you always have them having these difficult situations that they need to overcome Mm -hmm. but underlying it there is always this sense of right and wrong good and evil and this this idea that these solutions you know there is a there is a way of answering these kind of problems and
1: and actually then um a lot of the kind of, you know, good stories and good movies have to revolve around around conflict that then gets resolved, right? That's what we as human beings love in narratives. But it's interesting how many of the kinds of conflicts we often get seen depicted are between self and other. And interestingly, that's what my work on supererogation was really concerned with, this idea that morality is about the consideration of other people, and yet we might have permissions to consider ourselves in certain ways. But what's interesting about these kinds of actions is, is that we know what the morally right thing to do is, which is self-sacrifice. Um, that isn't to say that that self-sacrifice is mandated by morality sometimes, especially in the case of the lofty goals of superheroes, then it would be too much to demand of an ordinary person. Um, But I think life gets infinitely more tricky when the conflict isn't really between my self-interest and what's best for someone else or society, but when we realize that even if we just care about society and we're happy to make whatever sacrifices are required, that you can only benefit certain members of society at the expense of others. of the ways in which i think we go wrong when it comes to our approach to machines and the way in which they're designed is that uh we have this idea on the one hand these systems are perfectly rational right they're essentially at base maybe just mathematical and isn't that the highest ideal of rationality but on the other hand we have this idea that human beings are perfectly rational too and neither of these things are true So when it then comes to how can we make an AI system, for example, act in ways that accord with our understanding of how they ought to behave, so when we're bringing these kind of normative elements of what we ought, what ought or ought not to be, and how things ought or ought not to behave, um, we have to ask ourselves, well, what what should the standard be? And my answer to this is that we need to take into account very much the, the nature of the entities that we're talking about. So previously, morality was... Perhaps something that only really applied to human beings and we, um, the people doing it, like myself, ethicists like myself, are at least human beings. We have a little bit of understanding, though often uh, we can be blind to an awful lot at the same time. But machines function very differently. And yet we still hold ourselves up to the standard of what it is to do right and wrong. And so one thing you can see um, as a common theme in much of the work that approaches the design of moral machines is that it should be based on us. Um, So sometimes it's based on what we do. So we say, you know, if a human being would do this in this situation, that's how we should design machines. Um, Of course, the problem with this is that, uh, as I hope we all are pretty aware, human beings are not very ethical creatures. We often fail to live up to our own standards. So perhaps uh, instead of doing as we do, we should do as we say that we ought to do. And then we come to this broad uh, strain of um, literature that engages with this idea of we should take current ethical theories and try and apply them in the case of AI systems. But the problem with this is, is that those very theories were designed for things like us and not things like them. As so this mimetic approach, as I call it, which has this descriptive branch, like doing as we do, copying us. Um, Or this normative branch of saying, okay, do what what morally speaking applies to us. Um, Both have this underlying assumption, which is that these things function like us um, or that how the differences in how we function shouldn't affect uh, the theories that are appropriate. And I disagree. I say there are fundamental differences in how we are that make a fundamental difference to what we ought to do.
0: One thing that follows from that, though, is if we, uh, how would put it, perhaps some of the problems or dangers which come from then viewing machines as morally different and kind of morally other, uh, in a way this might actually kind of encourage us to behave in unethical or problematic ways because it enables us or encourages us to disregard the um, the machines that we're engaging with. We don't have to think about, we don't have to engage in other regarding behaviour. And so isn't there a kind of a, a risk of if we don't seriously treat Um, uh, these others that we're engaging with as kind of moral entities, we end up actually degrading our own moral capacity.
1: So is this, is what you have in mind that we might end up sort of treating machines poorly? Is that the idea? Or that we sort of abrogate responsibility by allowing them to do the moral hard work? but then their morality is the same as ours. So they might act differently and we can allow that to happen. I don't, I'm not, which one of those do you sort of have in mind?
0: Yeah, well, they're both problems. <laughs> um, the, I was thinking more of the, the dynamic of um, how you, how we would treat machines and then also perhaps the way that would um, influence our own behavior.
1: Yeah. So um There is, I think, a appropriate sort of psychological concern there. Though I should start off by saying that uh, from my point of view, then these systems are not moral agents. Um, I deal with current and emerging technology and we're very very far away from creating anything to my mind that fulfills the conditions of being a moral agent something that can be morally responsible in and of itself so if, even though they're capable in in my sort of parlance of moral action as in they perform actions of moral consequence they need to behave in ways that take into account what's morally significant they are not themselves the fundamental locus of responsibility um but also on my view they're not moral patients they don't have intrinsic moral status of their own Um, And so I don't think there's any real sense in which we could treat a machine morally badly um, insofar as it's, you know, we don't respect it in the way that it ought to be respected. Though we can do foolish things. It's bad to destroy things of value for no reason. But uh, human beings are very, very good at uh, acting as if or or sort of imaginatively pretending that certain things that we're interacting with are more human-like than they are. And so even if they are not, in fact, moral agents or moral patients, if we start thinking of them in that way and then treat them badly, there is a concern that we could teach ourselves to treat things of actual intrinsic moral worth other people um, badly. So this is an argument I think Kant makes about animals. So he says animals don't have any intrinsic moral worth in and of themselves, a statement many of us would now i think disagree with um but if you kind of kick a dog and you learn that kicking dogs is com- and you think kicking dogs is completely fine you might end up becoming callous uh to the suffering of others including other human beings and that can make you a morally worse person so i think there's Two ways we could approach that problem. So one is that we could try and treat machines well when they're more like human beings in appearance, for example, or in behaviour, to ensure that we continue to treat other human beings appropriately. Or, and this goes kind of to my idea about uh, discomfort by design, that instead we design machines that highlight their differences. And that way, hopefully, we can um, not end up confusing and alighting machines and human beings and then kind of learning the wrong lessons from our treatment.
0: Yeah. Well, this discomfort by design idea, I think it it is a really interesting one because I think the more that I've been reflecting on the way that digital technologies are shaping the context in in which we're acting. uh, One of my great concerns is a lack of awareness of of their role and the way that they're a very powerful background condition, but perhaps we're not fully aware of um, how they are perhaps influencing or shaping our actions in the context in which we're operating. And so thinking then about how we can become more conscious and, and more aware and in a way, what you're suggesting is, is quite different from the dominant direction at the moment, where it's very much to put everything to the background as as, as much as possible, and so we're not seeing or thinking about the way that um, these uh, these systems are operating. Um, and to, 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 I mean, just a, a very simple example would be. The, the extent to which we, we now rely upon, you know, different forms of algorithms, the, the amount that we rely on search engines, and when doing so, we really have very little awareness of how the information that we're looking for and finding is, is being shaped and manipulated in terms of how it's being presented to us.
1: Yeah, there's definitely, I think, a drive in design at the moment to make things as sort of seamless and as background as integrated as possible into our lives. And of course, that comes with promises of greater convenience and greater usability and so on. But as you say, one of the things it also does is it puts into the backgrounds a lot of the ways in which these things work and the um, ethical, assumptions and principles and values that are then baked into them as well become less and less visible
0: and so what you're proposing with uh, discomfort by design is effectively to emphasize the the difference between uh, the systems that we're engaging with and ourselves
1: Yes, absolutely, to, to highlight the ways in which they work, the ways in which they differ, and the impact that has on how they behave and how they ought to behave.
0: Yeah. And so then how does that then change the way that we're thinking and engaging?
1: So the idea behind this is a psychological claim that I'm hoping at some point to empirically test, which is that um, by by making them less streamlined, less background, more uncomfortable in some sense to be around, we then focus on the differences. And that makes us more aware of their actual natures. And so then we hopefully sidestep this problem that you highlighted earlier about perhaps we'll treat them as if they were people, but then we might treat them immorally and then we, you know, they might uh, emotionally... Um, have an impact on our that might have a impact on our own moral behavior towards other people uh, but also then we hopefully won't be as um blind to and indifferent to the ways in which these things are power structures our infrastructure in our own lives that shape our interactions with others the the, the Uh, moral power that they have, the moral values that they have should become more apparent the more they're sort of kept in focus um, as artefacts of human creation that have a great deal of impact on our everyday lives and experiences.
0: Yeah, I think also there you, you hit on something really important in terms of the way that these technologies are often presented as being morally neutral, you know, So this is just scientific progress, right? And, um, but then embedded within these technologies are uh, all these, uh, not only assumptions in terms of how uh, people, people live and think and act, uh, but also assumptions related to uh, social categories, culture, Uh, which then kind of replicate and point us in in certain types of directions. There's this really interesting dynamic, I find, between this sense of technological progress as being something kind of inevitable and kind of going on a certain trajectory which is out of our control, like this is just how it's going. And then that trajectory being one which is very much directed and shaped by individuals, organizations, people with interests, beliefs, understandings of the world. And you sort of start with this assumption of, of um, people being very far removed from these objects and these technologies and you end up with the situation where they all end up being the Ottoman, you know, the, what is it, you know, the mechanical Mm -hmm. Turk where there's always a human underneath operating it.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting the ways, like where we are putting the focus of control, who has control. And often as you say, sometimes, um, I think because we have a tendency to think about this in terms of individuals, then it seems like nobody has control. And in some sense, that's true. Like, no one individual really has control over how these things work. But on the other hand, we often think that the solutions to the problems we're going to have rest in individual actions and autonomy. And you can see this in the move, for example, towards the focus on consent, user consent. And you think, right, so if if any one user gives their consent, they use their data in a particular way, then the moral problem is solved. But actually, of course, the truth is much more complex than that which is that these things arise from collection, uh, collectives of people and interactions between various power structures, but also then they're deployed in ways that affect um, collectives of people, on the other hand, as well. And it's therefore only as uh, groups of people can we really have any effective control over the ways in which these things work. Um, and that's why, in some ways, though I am an ethicist and I think ethics is incredibly important here, then this, this focus on kind of ethics as an individual's action is probably the wrong, wrong place to look. We need to have, in some sense, a more political philosophy or political theory understanding of these technologies and, because that is the level on which they're designed and deployed.
0: Well, you're, this is great. We're going directly into my wheelhouse One of the things I'm most interested in with my own work is the fundamental problem of um, agency in the context of conditions that are not of our choosing, right? And how we can act in or think in ethical ways in the context where we have limited capacity to control outcomes and, and shape the conditions that, that we're in. And one of the things I, I, I reflect on a lot is if we're focusing, I mean, we have to have this kind of dual focus, right? So we need to think about collective action and we need to think about how we can mobilize together to, uh, for instance, think about regulating certain types of platforms. Uh, But at the same stage, I, I, I end up coming back to the macro being based on the micro. And uh, to what extent better solutions or better outcomes are possible if we cannot generate better interactions on the personal and interpersonal level. And one, and this actually comes back to the other um, problem you pointed towards before, Which is also the way that our reliance upon these technologies may actually end up degrading our capacity to engage in ethical reasoning and behavior. Right? So there's this real danger of, you know, in the same way that the more that we rely on Google Maps, our ability to uh, read maps degrades. And uh, the more that we rely on search engines, it degrades our ability to, to actually go out and, and find, find things. Morally, we also might end up in a situation where our actual capacity for seriously engaging and reflecting on these difficult situations and how to resolve um, challenging dilemmas actually also gets degraded.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, there's been quite um, uh, a burgeoning field at the moment of concerns about the, of moral skill and automation. And that's one of the big projects I'm working on here at ANU is exactly on that question. And so one thing we should know is that technology has always eroded skills of various kinds. So most of us don't know how to start a fire now without, you know, with, a, with just a stick. Um, and I think most of us are okay having lost that kind of uh, knowledge. Uh, I also rely very, very heavily on uh, GPS navigation. I'm terrible without it. And I think I'm also okay with that. But there does see something special about the moral case. So while it seems fine to outsource to technology certain kinds of non-moral skills, um, even if you take something simple like certain sorts of crafts, lots of people don't know how to hand sew or to use a loom, Um, there seems something about morality that makes it different and more concerning that we might become morally worse. And partly that is because I think that it's important that our actions are morally speaking flow from our agency and that outsourcing or deferring that kind of um judgment to something else or even someone else seems problematic in terms of being a fully fledged moral agent. And the question then is though, and this is one of the central questions that the, of the project I'm working on is, how is it that automation might threaten moral skill? And there's lots of ways we might be concerned about it. One is that if we leave sort of small um, acts of moral judgment in the hands of automated systems, how can we then be good at making? big ones right this is often called the paradox of automation which is that we give them all the simple small tasks to do in lots of domains but when it comes to the more complex difficult problems it gets pushed back to a human uh, decision maker but a human decision maker to make those difficult complex judgments often needs to have made all those small low level low stakes uh, decisions in the first place so we sort of often um take away our opportunities for learning through the use of automation. Uh, and that's, that's one of the interesting kind of questions that we're looking at as part
0: of that project. I mean, but there's also the ways that work and labor actually also generate meaning. And mm-hmm. so tasks, which may be simple or repetitive may still actually have value. Uh,
1: and this is this is like the great promise of so much technology in our lives, that it will free us up from the boring, monotonous work in order to free our bodies and our minds up to do more creative, enriching, meaningful work. Um, but I agree with you that there is a question about whether that promise of technology has really been fulfilled. If you look, for example, at labor-saving devices in the home, uh, I think it's... Um, as yet unproven or at least debated as to whether we now do less housework of various forms despite the plethora of labour saving devices we have in the home. Uh, We often fill our time with other sort of relatively boring tasks and of course we do we would want to be concerned that if if all meaningful work was automated what do we leave ourselves?
0: So why do we save time? What's what's the value of, of saving time and i think there's also some really interesting reflections upon i mean even thinking about time as a resource and as a commodity uh, So this whole logic of we need to save and conserve time so we're thinking about it as a resource you know so like like we save our money we save our time mm-hmm. But then how are we actually going to spend it or use it? So I think one thing is, as you're saying, that it's not even clear that this actually saves time. And uh, as workers in an email economy, I think both you and I can agree that it's unclear whether the advent of email has helped with um, a reduction in work. but then also, <laughs> if we, we are actually saving time, then then how are we going to use it? And then this gets us to actually get really, really basic questions about the good life, about what's important. And we kind of circle back around. And, and from what I can tell, the way that people use their free time at the moment is not necessarily in ways that are... Uh, you know, enriching, <laughs> All right? So if, if, we, if we have this labour-saving um, technology, will this actually lead to significant changes in, in how we're living and engaging with each other? I think there's kind of a set of assumptions there that I'm not c- quite convinced by.
1: And this is, for me, one of the reasons why philosophy is such a, a uh, powerful and important discipline and needs to have more time in engaging with with the public because you're right like at base these questions boil down to what does a good life look like how can we achieve that what counts as meaning how can we engage in meaningful activity and um, what counts as enriching and as well as you know what makes us happy on a a more simple level than that too. But I think, as you say, it's interesting that we have all of this technology and yet in some ways we spend less time perhaps on addressing those questions. But I think one of the ways in which both the pandemic with the ways in which it has really challenged people's everyday living and also advances in modern technology have prompted is this new awareness of those very questions because the the difficulties that we have with technology and the ways in which like our lives have been disrupted in so many ways in the last sort of five to ten years is to then actually ask well what's it for what's it for what are we doing all this for um and what do we want our lives to really be like And we have to start there in order to understand then the difficulties, the problems that technology um, gives rise to and what kind of solutions we need to bring about to them. But firstly, uh, this goes back to your very question about agency, we have to see ourselves as agential. And I think lots of systems are set up somewhat as an artifact of their design, but also sometimes I think quite deliberately to try and stop us from engaging in those questions. You know, these these technologies are in the hands of corporations and those corporations, are, they don't really have that much incentive for us to stop and consider how we want technology to do something for us. What we want it, um, what we want our lives to be like is not necessarily the question they're hoping that we're going to ask in relation to them. use tolerance for boredom and quiet now you know we feel the need to be focused on something um and it's very difficult i think sometimes for people not not to have something to do to fiddle with to look at to be to attend to to respond to um you know even five minutes of being bored, like you know of having nothing to do and just waiting uh, can can feel really quite hmm.
0: uncomfortable and i mean this connects this comes back to this um the value of discomfort. Oh, mm-hmm.
1: Yes, and sometimes we need to embrace it. You, it's there's lots of things that can occur in those spaces, whether it's kind of thoughts or imagination or connecting with other people. Uh, I was in a waiting room recently, and um, I was quite open to, to talking to the people who were also waiting there. And and yet, when people are on their phones, you know, it's it's a very unsubtle signal of I'm not interested in, in talking. And sometimes I think actually they were doing it because they were bored and they were waiting, but it it puts this barrier in between us Um, when you're looking at your own advice, connecting with people through that, but not necessarily the people sitting around you. And those encounters then, of course, diminish in in number Mm. and
0: quality. Yeah, this actually connects in an interesting way to another theme I'm very interested in, which is the role of chance and surprise. And the, the way that on, on, we can look at this, I guess, on two levels. On one level, right, the way that our increasing reliance upon technologies that use algorithms entails algorithms which are basically trained on past human behavior and mm-hmm. as a result encourage us to mirror those past behaviors and in the process, reduce the scope for new behaviors and new ways of thinking because it's pushing us to repeat um, what has already happened. Uh, And then on on another level, on a day-to-day basis, the the type of situation you're describing, this is, is also encouraging us away from the type of random, uncontrolled interactions that, that can happen. Uh, 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 to combine the, these, these two levels, we can think about the difference in the way that you would now find maybe a restaurant or you'd find a coffee shop. Uh, no longer do you walk randomly in an area trying to find something to eat. You immediately uh, search for something. And more often than not, you go to the place which has the highest rating based upon your search results, right? And mm-hmm. this means that you gravitate towards certain types of places, and then you also um, lose or miss the potential for randomly or accidentally discovering other places with, with good or bad outcomes, <laughs>
1: yeah well I think that's one of the interesting things though is that we we have to remember that the these technologies do benefit us in so many ways and that is partly the, the power right like is that on the one hand perhaps you eat significantly less terrible restaurants and yet as you say it does come out at a, at a cost of something um and in this case you know the, the serendipity or the kind of uh the chance of wandering the streets and finding somewhere and that having some importance or value or meaning in and of itself Uh, and the thing I think that's important to keep in mind is that these are beneficial like the fact that I can talk to you now from thousands of miles away instantaneously is a huge benefit the fact that you can keep connected with family through social media is a huge benefit but really the question is is What are the costs and how are those costs disguised and are we willing to pay pay them? And are those costs so high to us as individuals that, you know, what kinds of choices are we left with as individuals and how much agency can we then have in terms of saying, well, it's not inevitable that we can have these benefits for these costs. Are there not ways in which we can keep these benefits to the large or same degree while reducing or exchanging or changing the kinds of costs that are associated with them. Um, and, like, you know, technology has uh, ex- extraordinary um, benefits in these ways. Uh, we have to keep that in mind. We shouldn't – there is a reason we keep using.
0: Yeah, I mean, there are reasons, but I think the this, – this question of, of – of, how we understand and reckon with the the costs i think is is really really important and also before we're talking a bit about this sort of sense of of inevitability and one of the things that i've become more conscious and aware of and and thinking a lot about is, is the way that so many of these technological developments are happening without this really serious kind of societal engagement about what is happening and if we look at the development of, of the internet and digital technologies, uh, one thing is very clear is that the way it is developed is considerably different from what was expected at the out, at the outset. And the kind of utopian visions are very, very different from the the realm of surveillance capitalism that we've ended up in. And you know one of the things which uh, you know Zuboff, I think is very interesting about with surveillance capitalism is also the way that surveillance capitalism was not the inevitable outcome of the development of internet. Uh, even the direction that Facebook and Google were originally going in, it didn't mm. automatically or necessi- necessarily lead us towards the type of platforms that we now have. And
1: this kind of points to a. Interesting seeming contradiction when it comes to technology, which combines that thought and the one you had before, which is that on the one hand, the technology itself and the impact that it has on us is highly unpredictable. Right, it's very, very, very difficult to say from the outset how things are going to go and and what kinds of consequences it can have for us. And I think something like Twitter, you know, it's very, very difficult. I would have said at the outset of Twitter to have predicted something like the January sixth rights. Um, all the way in which it's been used to oppress uh, religious and ethnic minorities in various countries across the world. And yet at the same time, these very technologies are often accused, quite rightly so, of being highly conservative, of replicating the past in a lot of different ways. As you were saying, you know, they're, they're all based on historical data. The only data that exists, of course, is data of the past, and they take them, and they take that as like the baseline, and what they do is they replicate it. They say people who are like, you know, had property X uh, also then went on to do Y. All right, that's going to be the assumption of this. Or people who were interested in this were also then interested in that, will assume therefore that if you are currently or in the future interested in this, you're going to be interested in that. We get forced into these patterns of attention and behavior that seem to replicate the past. As so on the one hand you have these deeply um uh conservative historically replicating entities which nevertheless seem on the other hand to be deeply deeply mm. unpredictable despite the fact that you think in some ways being very conservative they should be highly predictable
0: yeah this is uh that's a very interesting contrast i'm trying to to work out how to 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 make sense of these two i mean i think One of the things I reflect a lot on is is how to... what type of um, ethic this this should um, lead towards in thinking about how we develop these technologies. And I have very mixed feelings about the turn towards ethics within... um, A lot of these, uh, like big tech sector, and uh, the fact that we have, uh, you know, Facebook, Google, uh, and so on, talking about ethics, is—is this a good thing, or is this—is this are we basically ending up with like an ethics version of greenwashing?
1: Well, ethics washing is a established term now, oh, okay. yeah. So, you know, these, the idea that these uh, corporations are co opting the language of ethics to reassure the publics, and on the one hand, that is a good thing. Um, the more attention we have to the ethical aspects of technology, the better. The more that becomes part of public awareness, the better. The downside of it is that. One of the fundamental problems, of the way in which these technologies work is that we now have a huge amount of power, power that affects us all sort of almost every minute, every day through our phones and computers and the ways in which you know, um, our very infrastructure is now technologically connected is in the hands of a very, very few and often a few that are very homogenous. And the problem with uh, these big corporations taking on the role of the arbitrators of ethics is that we then still leave um, this great power, in this case, of deciding what values are important and how they should be realised in the hands of very few and often a very homogenous group. And what it can actually have the effect of is making us feel like we don't need to engage in it. It's a kind of way to pacify, I think, quite understandable anxiety and anger Uh, about the ways in which these technologies have been developed and are used and how they affect us. And so what we need to do is take that discussion out of the hands of uh, those like Google and Apple and Facebook and say, well, no, like these are our values. Why should we suppose that a small number of people in Silicon Valley can determine for us what those values ought to be? Um, And, of course, to realise that corporations have their own interests, and that's no bad thing, right? That's been true since the age of businesses, but that their interests are not aligned. They're not going to be identical with what is in the best interests of us as individuals or our society. And actually, unless we put strong incentives in place to try and make them align, then what we're doing is we're allowing um, an organization who is understandably profit-driven uh, to be the ones to determine the kinds of values that get enacted in our society.
0: That was my conversation with Claire Benn, recorded in March 2022. It has been produced with support from a grant by the Toshiba International Foundation and was edited by Peter Van Hosen. For more information, please check my website, christopherhobson.net, and my substack, imperfectnotes.substack.com. My email is info.hobson at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Imperfect World with Christopher Hobson.